Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the Scanner studio today are David Ballard and Alan John Zupon, and both have been associated with the South Carolina Geodetic Survey. Alan's retired, and David is currently working with the South Carolina Geodetic Survey, and we're going to talk about the North Carolina-South Carolina boundary. It's finally settled, but it's been almost 300 years in the making. So, gentlemen, welcome to the journal. Thank you. Just maybe a, a little historical lesson of the original boundaries of Carolina, which went from the Virginia state line to almost the St. John's River and from the Atlantic to the Pacific. And the early provincial records refer to the province of Carolina, the northeastern portion of that province, the capital of which was Charlestown. So clearly, South Carolina went from an empire to this little pie-shaped triangle on the map. And you gentlemen helped finalize the last piece of that border. How long were you working on that project? We started the um, project in 1995. Actually, what was happening in the early 1990s, we were having jurisdictional problems in the uh, Charlotte, York County area because of the uh, rapid growth up there and the uh, border was ambiguous. So in April of 1993, South Carolina Geodetic Survey and North Carolina Geodetic Survey signed a memorandum of agreement to work to reestablish the boundary. Uh, We started some research in 1994, but then in 1995, Duke Energy wanted to know where the state boundary was in Oconee Pickens County for South Carolina because they were building a nuclear plant up there and they wanted to build a nuclear plant in one state or the other so they could avoid extra uh, regulations from both states. You started off there in the west, the North Carolina-South Carolina border, and that was actually in dispute in the colonial period They had where we came together with Georgia, Tennessee, and North Carolina. But the Duke Power Company questioned, so that got the two geodetic surveys in the states working on it. So what did you said research? How did, did you be like a historian and go back to the records, or what did you do? Well, for that, for that section, since we're starting on that, it stated in the statutes that there, was, there were plots that were uh, completed at the time of the survey back in 1815. And so I went to the South Carolina Department of Archives and History looking for the plat. They said they didn't have it. It wasn't in their catalog. Uh, I checked with the North Carolina Archives and History Department, and they didn't have a copy of it either. So I went back to our archives and history and talked with Marion Chandler, and Marion Chandler said, well, Alan, I might have seen something like you want. And he called me a couple weeks later and said, I think I found what you wanted. And it showed it to me, and it was a 19-foot-long plat of the 1815 boundary survey, very detailed. And uh, we used that to uh, reestablish the boundary above Pickens and Oconee County, the 20-mile section that Duke needed. And we also used that to continue eastward on reestablishing the boundary. All right. A 19-foot-long plat? Yes. Wow. How could they lose that in the archives? It was was filed in a drawer with um, other uncatalogued maps and and documents, so nobody knew it was there. So, I mean, that's, that's pretty amazing. So you've got it. So you're both surveyors, right? Uh, no. Nope. Are you a survey? I am, professional land surveyor. So you've got this plat. Did somebody then go on the ground and physically survey it out? They did. What we did, uh, the plat runs from basically that where Spartanburg and Greenville County line meet the North Carolina, South Carolina boundary and goes westward to the Chattooga River. We're at first interested in only the westernmost 20 miles from around Indian Camp Mountain down to the Chattooga River. And so 
there were some rocks, stones, that were mentioned on the plat. And we went out with the Duke Energy people and looked for those stones to recover what we could. We didn't find any of those stones except for the one at the Chattooga River, which is called Commissioner's Rock. Uh, it's erroneously been called Ellicott's Rock, but Ellicott's Rock is about 19, mile, uh, 19 feet north of Commissioner's Rock. And this is when Ellicott worked for the uh, state of Georgia in 1811 and uh, did some surveying for them and marked that rock. And then the Commissioner's Rock was marked by the North Carolina and South Carolina commissioners in 1815 when they finished the survey there. All right. When you, when you ran that line then, was Duke Power's property on both sides of the state line or did it? Yes, yes it was. And uh, so they, they offered uh, for South Carolina and North Carolina to uh, purchase the properties that they didn't need. All right. Uh, well, what about that Georgia rock that's north of that? Is Georgia wasn't trying to get any more of our land, was it? No, no. That was that was that was eighteen. Hey, we've always had a boundary problem with Georgia. They took us to court, but we won, right? Okay, that was yeah. <laughs> we did. We did, and and that's that's nineteen seventy six. Um, a shrimper from Hilton Head Island was fishing off the mouth of the Savannah River, and uh, Georgia wildlife officials arrested him, came on his boat, arrested him, and was taking him back into Savannah, saying he was illegally shrimping in Georgia waters. On the way into Savannah, he overpowered the wildlife officials, locked them in the cabin of his boat, and took them back to Hilton Head Island. Uh, Governor Edwards at that time uh, refused to extradite him to Georgia because where the boundary was was in question. And so Georgia sued South Carolina. South Carolina sued Georgia in the, Supreme, in the, South, in the U.S. Supreme Court. And, um, and and we need to let our folks know history. That's in a case of original jurisdiction. It goes straight to the Supreme Court. Right. And so then uh, the Supreme Court gave it to a master in equity to determine what should be done. South Carolina and Georgia disagreed with the results of the master in equity, and so they decided to go ahead and they decided on their own how they were going to settle it. It was finally 2000 was when the Congress agreed to the boundary that South Carolina and Georgia had worked out, and then it was dismissed by the Supreme Court's uh, U.S. Supreme Court in 2002. That took that took oh, 1976 to about 2002 to finish. That was about 10 miles of boundary. It cost about 10 million dollars because of dispute, and this is one reason that. South Carolina and North Carolina signed a memorandum of agreement uh, to work on the boundary and, we, and so we could do it amicably. David, we just finished the, the Georgia boundary question, which you'd have thought would have been, was settled in you know, the 18th century. In the 20th century, but is it unusual, for example, to have the state boundaries not really where people think they are? Uh, I think that's pretty common all over the state and it just it's not just state boundaries it's county boundaries also we have overlaps gaps and boundaries and now that we have the technology and we have shared geographic coordinates on international reference frames national reference frames we can get back to these points a lot easier now so um, that's part of the push for this is we can put the monuments on geographic coordinates and if the monuments are lost destroyed, what have you, we can get back to them very easily. Okay. You read when the counties were created, and those even in the late 19th century, it talks about going to, still to the big oak tree and mm -hmm. yes, just we, the way it was done since the Middle Ages. Yes, sir. We, we have um, monuments in the code of law for counties that are described as a dead pine tree. And, and that's specifically in Marlboro County's description, and, you know, Marlboro County's been there for a very long time. Mm. So you're talking about a dead pine tree 150, 60 years ago. Um, so we've <laughs> got to go back and do the research and, and hope 
that there's some plat or document deed something that has helped perpetuate that corner through time and then we go out and do the field work and locate it all right well we've got georgia settled we talk about counties but let's look now at the north carolina south carolina line even on the map for a non-surveyor it looks a little strange you know it makes a straight surveyor's line and then all of a sudden it does this crazy little jig to get up there for york county before it goes west I know the story, but Alan, you want to talk about how it got that way? Well, the North Carolina and South Carolina provinces, after it became became a uh, royal colony, uh, and the Crown agreed that the boundary dividing the two should start 30 miles southwest of the Cape Fear River, the west side of the Cape Fear River, and go northwest until it reached the uh, 35th parallel. So they started surveying in 1735. They did the survey up through 1737. During that time, it was an on and off survey because sometimes the surveyors didn't get paid, the commissioners didn't get paid, so they would quit. Or the climate was uh, such that it was made it difficult work going through a lot of swamps. They thought they reached the 35th parallel and they put a lightwood stake at that point, and that was in 1737. About uh, 1764, it was decided the uh, boundary needed to go westward from that point because settlers were now settling in the interior. And so the Crown said, for some reason, the Crown thought maybe the 35th parallel hadn't been reached. And it, the instructions were if the 35th parallel hadn't been reached, to continue to that and then go do westward. For some reason, again, the surveyors and the commissioners accepted that point in 1737 and they went westward and they surveyed westward and when they reached the Salisbury Road Samuel Wiley who had surveyed the Catawba Indian Reservation uh, earlier that year realized they weren't on the 35th parallel because they should have reached the Catawba Indian Reservation boundary before they hit the Salisbury Road so they stopped the survey at that point on the Salisbury Road, and that was the end of the 1764 survey. So in 1772, they decided, well, okay, we're going to go up the Salisbury Road until it hit the boundary of the Catawba Indian Reservation, follow the boundary of the Catawba Indian Reservation until it came to the uh, Catawba River, go up the Catawba River until it hit the fork of the Catawba River, and then go westward from that point until it hit the uh, Cherokee Indian boundary that existed in 1772 that was originally surveyed in 1767. So that's how you get that situation. And the York County jog, that that area was initially called the New Acquisition. Correct. It was called New Acquisition until Cherokee County was created by the state. So. See, history comes into all of this stuff, but it, dealing in the 20th century, David, and were you actually involved in some of the surveying of the of the new North Carolina-South Carolina line? Very little. Um, I've been involved with the geodetic survey now for four years. I started in September four years ago, um, and by that time, most everything had wrapped up. The, the involvement I had was replacing a granite monument on the Catawba River, or not the Catawba River, the Waccamaw placing a granite monument on the Waccamaw, which was really pretty interesting. So, but. Well, you want to talk about that? <laughs> well, to me, interesting is that we were out there and we went to go find this monument, and it was originally reported fell on the bank, on the cut bank, by some people that were clearing snags out there. They used their machinery to move it to the other side of the Waccamaw River, and Alan John and North Carolina Geodetic Survey went out there to find this monument that they placed on opposite bank. Alan took pictures of the monument and took some measurements on the pictures to some trees and stuff. When we went back out there years later, it was missing. It <laughs> it was no longer you, you it was no longer visible. Um, so we took out his pictures and pulled the measurements from some trees and ended up digging and it was buried under about two foot two and a half foot of sand so we dug the monument back out of the sand i mean was it deliberately buried or had it just it 
just the way the the, the river yeah the river um, bank okay yeah and so we decided we were going to move it and place it back on the North Carolina South Carolina boundary um, this monument I think Alan did the math and it weighed eighteen hundred pounds eight hundred eight hundred pounds eight hundred pounds so we're out there and we tried to lift it and tried to pull it out of the sand and it's near impossible for two people to do so we've got North Carolina geodetic survey folk out there so now there's four of us out there and they brought a cart with them so we had to come along and jack this thing out of the sand and put it on the cart I mean it it was a process and then we moved it through the swamp about 300 feet to the North Carolina South Carolina boundary and placed it replaced it and positioned it but it was me out there, and at the time, I'm early 40s, Alan's in his 60s, Gary's in his 60s, <laughs> Dennis Lee's in his 60s, so I'm out there with, you know, these older guys, but man, they pulled that stuff out of the sand, and they worked their butts off to get it back to the North Carolina, South Carolina boundary. I was impressed. And using granite markers, is that common do you still use granite markers today for the boundaries or you just rely on your fancy surveying tools that can just shoot a laser beam and figure out where things are we still put markers in the ground but it varies um we no longer use granite markers uh we use rebar and what we use for county boundaries now and what our standard is is a three foot section of one inch diameter rebar with a cap on it Okay. with an aluminum cap and I think that on the ridge line for the North Carolina South Carolina boundary you used five eighths or one half inch diameter right at least two foot lengths right. of rebar is it standing it's standing out of the ground or is it no that uh, the rebar is is driven into the ground the caps ground okay. ground level what was interesting about that is we used aluminum caps along the ridge line and there are more than probably about 800 points along that ridge line defining the boundary. And we went back three or four months later in order to check some of the things. And some of the, a number of the aluminum caps had been chewed back to about the diameter of the uh, rebar. And basically, it's squirrels. <laughs> squirrels just, just like they like to they chew like on, they like to chew on your, uh, the uh, wires that hold your chain link fence up and your chain link fence falls off but the, the squirrels had chewed the uh, caps so have you replaced them or you just <laughs> let let the squirrels have their we fun? let the squirrels have their way <laughs> the rebar we, is still in the ground okay <laughs> yeah okay all right so the north carolina boundary process were 1993 1995 finally settled january 1st 2017 it was. It was. Let's talk about getting from here to there because, you know, there have been stories, particularly in the Charlotte newspaper, about this filling station. It's in South Carolina, which has been selling fireworks for years and has a beer license and all of that. It's going to be in North Carolina where you can't sell fireworks. And did your service, did you all get involved in this or is this something that the lawyers? for the Attorney General have to get involved with? How do you deal with that? After we finished that 20-mile section for Duke and determining uh, where the state line was regarding where the proposed nuclear plant was, the two boundary commissions got together and met, and we decided we approved that section, the work that was done by the two geodetic surveys, and then we decided to continue eastward from that point, and so the next section that was done was the ridge line. And this, again, is a physical boundary. It's a physical monument because it was uh, the point on the ridge that the water flowed north in North Carolina and the water flowed south in the South Carolina. So there was a physical marker that we could use and survey. But after we finished that section, then we were doing that 64-mile section from the basically the Greenville-Spartanburg boundary northern end point over to Lake Wiley. And in that section, we started getting into a lot of development that had occurred, more and more development as we went eastward. 
when we were on the ridge line, there was some development, but uh, and one of the rules is when you reestablish boundaries is you're supposed to uh, use the most accurate and reliable evidence that you have available at that time. All the second rule is to try and disturb society as little as possible. Well, back when the 1815 survey was done on the ridge line originally, the only house that was disturbed that ran, the boundary ran through was uh, Stephen Morgan's house. The ruins of that house still exist. And we only had one house that we really uh, went through with the boundary in uh, when we did that section in the early 2000s, and that was the Leonard's house and Martha and Bernie. And Bernie was very fond of saying that uh, Martha ate her meals in North Carolina and he ate his meals in South Carolina because the boundary ran through their kitchen and their table. So, <laughs> but, but as we, as I say, as we got eastward toward the Charlotte area, we had more and more dwellings that were being affected. So the boundary, the Joint Boundary Commission in 2009 decided at that time that the two GDX surveys needed to determine which properties were being affected and, and how they were being affected. So we had to do those studies. And at that time, we involved the attorney general's offices for both states as far as issues that had arisen as far as education, taxes, so forth. And so we didn't know all the issues, but um, the attorney general's offices for both states helped us with those. Again, the technical work was done for the entire boundary in 2013, but because of the issues involving people that were either going to be moved from North Carolina to South Carolina or vice versa, uh, that had all be worked out, and that took several more years before the bill was finally passed by both states. You mentioned two entities I'd like to get clarified. You talk about the Boundary Commission. Now, was this a state agency, a joint North Carolina, South Carolina agency? Does it still exist? Okay. South Carolina had its boundary commission. North Carolina had its boundary commission. Then we had a joint. We, we just when we met, we called it the Joint North Carolina South okay. Carolina Boundary Commission. All right. This commission is created by the General Assembly. The South Carolina South Carolina yes. General Assembly. Yes, sir. Now, David, you work for the Geodetic Survey, which is a state agency, right? Yes, sir. Now that this boundary has been settled, all we want to go back and talk about a minute. What is the Geodetic Survey? Do you work with county lines now? Is that what's your main job? Uh, my main job is that I work with county lines, but we have also um, worked on some school district lines where there are problems. But m the majority of what I do are county boundaries. Okay. We work on county boundaries, but our agency does a, a bit more than that. So you spend a lot of time out in the field, right? <laughs> Not as much as I would like. I spend a lot of time. Um, and I enjoy the research, but I spend a lot of time in the office answering questions and, you know, but we do have a field crew that I'm able to pull on as a resource and send them out to do some of the field work I need. But when I'm not trying to wrap up projects or deal with some of our contractors, because we do hire out survey firms to do some of the work for us, uh, I get in the field and I really enjoy being in the field. You mentioned you were in your 40s. Back when I first came to Carolina and 1965, they used to have, I guess surveying was taught out of the geography department, and I don't remember, but they used to survey on campus. On the horseshoe, you'd see the guys, you know, he's got his stake, and you got the tripod, and you know, it looked like George Washington <laughs> surveying equipment was out there. Right. Now, I'm sure all of that has changed. How has the surveying profession changed, in just in terms of equipment and how you do things than when you first started? Um, some of the equipment we use is very similar to what was used back then, except for we no longer pull a chain. We have electronic distance measuring in our equipment, so it, it uses light. It uses a laser, and because we know how fast light travels, it can measure that distance very accurately. But I think the big change has been GPS, very accurate GPS. We can go out there with GPS now with used properly with repeatability within about the diameter of a quarter. So we can get back to the same point on the face of the earth within a quarter's diameter repeatedly. And 
And that's just changed everything in surveying. You know, we have instruments that do all kinds of things. The, the total station, the transit now, they have real-time video feeds in there. They're robotic. You no longer need a three-man field crew to do what what you can do with one man now, you know. Um, so a so, single surveyor can go out. You don't need the guy holding something up. Correct. Correct. You are the guy holding something up. You have all the control at the rod. You can control your instrument um, with a radio. You can tell it where you want it to look. You can actually turn on real-time video feed at your data collector and the instrument, you know, see where it's looking. If it's looking at you, see if it, you know, you can direct it from the controller, from the rod. Um, yes, sir. It's changed leaps and bounds. What happened to all oh, those wonderful description about so many links, so many rods, all of that, so many GPSs? Is that what no, we still we still do things in feet and bearings, but it's all on um, the South Carolina State Plain grid coordinate system. Well, that's interesting, but sometimes that's almost a little bit scary. You can pinpoint it to the size of a, of a quarter. And, and with technology comes problems. I mean, we see it in the surveying profession, and it, it's talked about constantly how people, because they have this precise measurement now, they think that their measurements are better than the last person, but there's still error in measurements. So you get what they call a pincushion effect on property corners, where there's three or four property corners because surveyor thought he measured better than the last guy so he put something two inches away and and that's just not the way it, it should be you know you mentioned the things that, that your office has to deal with now when you talk about school districts county lines but school districts of course has a tax issue involved and then there are all the various special purpose districts that we have in south carolina that have very specific boundaries might be a water might be a sewer district it might be a forestry district and all of those have tax implications so it seems to me you folks would be kept quite busy as somebody say well i'm not really in school district number five or or whatever correct school districts are the big issue i think you know the the special purpose districts the they can adjust accordingly or they can move their boundaries if they need to. But um, we really are concerned with the impacts to school children. We don't want them having to go to a different school. If they've been going to a school for five, six years, we don't want them going to another school, learning all new teachers, making you know all new friends. And, and we think about that a lot. And I believe the General Assembly is currently working on something to help alleviate the impacts when it comes to school t children. But we we have had minimal impacts when it comes to county lines. I think uh, Spartanburg, Cherokee, we maybe had 20 households that were deemed to be in the adjacent county. But um, Alan and Sid had worked on a line, Berkeley, Dorchester. Now, who's Sid? Sid Miller was uh, the chief of the geodetic survey and professional land surveyor. He he was instrumental in working on the North Carolina-South Carolina boundary and bringing the South Carolina geodetic survey into the state. But Sid and Allen had worked on the Berkeley-Dorchester line years ago, and, you know, the counties didn't do anything about it. And for 20-something years, there was nothing done. And now, because of the development around Somerville, we have close to 300 impacts. What we're determining as an impact is either a building or residence moving into the adjacent county or a large amount of property um, moving into the adjacent county. Well, 300, that's a fair amount, right? It's substantial. Alan, with the redrawing of the North Carolina-South Carolina boundary line, how many impacts were there when you went from Greenville-Spartanburg to Lake Wiley? That one, that I'll, I don't know right offhand on that one, but going eastward from the Greenville-Spartanburg boundary, actually there were only 16 households that were affected in the sense that three of those households would be moving from North Carolina to South Carolina, and 13 would be moving South Carolina to North Carolina. Now there are 54 where the boundary does run through the property in the house, and Again, it's undetermined yet as where their residency will be 
that still has to be uh, determined. All right, that still has to be adjudicated. What I think, David, you mentioned that election districts, is that in North Carolina or South Carolina, about where the head of the household sleeps is where the boundary is? It's my understanding that North Carolina has something in their code that, 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 that they can make a determination, but I don't think that applies to the North Carolina, South Carolina boundary. I think that applies to their internal boundaries. Um, South Carolina has always used it as a, a rule of thumb. Um, at least that's my understanding for electoral districts, that it's the master bedroom. You earlier mentioned, Alan, the the couple, I think it was the Leonard's they talked about. Correct. At breakfast, one was in North Carolina, one was in South Carolina. Correct. Is is that still the case, or how did they? Ever... No, that's still the case. That's still. I mean, that the boundary is set in that area. It goes through their house. They they don't they don't mind, but they'd already worked out their situation as far as where their residency was. Well, if a property is divided like that, do they pay Mecklenburg County taxes and York County tax, or which you know? I'm trying to figure out. In the past, what the assessors have done in the counties and across state borders is they get together and they agree on who's going to tax a certain parcel. And sometimes they split them. Sometimes, uh, let's say, York County will take the whole parcel. Mecklenburg will take the whole parcel. Um, And it just depends on where the majority of the parcel lies, which county. Yeah. Okay. So So it creates this jigsaw puzzle, and and it gets real confusing on where the lines are. But with this coming about, the state boundaries, uh, North Carolina's Department of Revenue, and I believe South Carolina's Department of Revenue says you cannot tax what is not in your jurisdiction. So they're going to be doing split valuations and splitting properties. Okay. Well, we need to pause a moment, folks, and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with Ellen John Zupon and David Ballard about the North Carolina-South Carolina boundary decision. Alan, you've been around this setting the state's boundaries for quite some time. What are some of the anecdotes? Because I've been told that you've got lots of stories. At least that's what <laughs> Chip McKinney said. Well, I don't. I don't know what he's referring to and says, but there are there are stories that we have with the boundaries, like the Leonards with one eating in breakfast or their meals in one state and one in the other. There's the one with the, the gas station, uh, now in Gaston County. It was originally back in 1994 when they built it. They, they were told they were in South Carolina. So they did uh, sell fireworks. They sold gasoline cheaper because of North Carolina's uh, gasoline tax is higher. And also they sold uh, beer and wine. And Gaston County is a dry county. And then when we reestablished the boundary... They were in North Carolina, completely in North Carolina. So that was a issue that had to be decided. And basically, it had to be decided by North Carolina because it was in North Carolina. The final decision was that they would allow the uh, convenience store to operate as a South Carolina business. So they were still able to sell beer and wine, sell the gasoline cheaper, and also sell the fireworks is one thing. David, have you got some? Yeah. uh, So what's interesting about the gas station in North Carolina is North Carolina cannot pass a law that benefits one particular citizen. Okay. So they couldn't really pass a law that (laughs) they couldn't. This is my understanding. They couldn't pass a law that said, all right, gas station owner, you are a South Carolina gas station. Um, They had to pass a law that benefited a class of citizen. So ended up they passed this law that benefited a class of citizen, but there is only one citizen in that class. Alan, you're nodding like you had a hand in writing that legislation. No, no, I didn't. But it's true. That's what it's true what they would say. That's how they resolve that issue. So and Alan does have a good story about the stone between Greenville Spartanburg that was on the South Carolina, North Carolina boundary. Um, um uh, Sid and I worked Again, Sid Miller and I worked on the Greenville-Spartanburg County line back in about 1990 because uh, there was a question about where the line was. And it was uh, following the old Indian boundary that was done in 1767. And we located it the best we could based upon 
the available evidence and said at that time uh, the stone was the northern endpoint of that county line. So Sid went up there one day to look for the stone. And he was, it's located in the middle of a field, and he couldn't find the stone. And there was a fellow out there that was a bush hog in the place. And he went over and talked with him. And the fellow said, well, some people from the Tryon Museum came and got the stone, took it away. And Sid explained the importance of that stone, that it was the northern end point of the county line, also it was on the North Carolina-South Carolina boundary. And the fellow said, I know they shouldn't have taken it. I know they shouldn't have taken it. But later on, we did find out that he helped load the stone onto the truck that they took it away with. So Sid went up to the museum at Tryon, and there was a stone sitting in the front yard, set up in the front yard of the museum. And Sid talked to the people and said, well, we'd like to have the stone back to put it back in its original position because of the, what it represents. And they wouldn't give him the stone. And he said, they were adamant about it. And he said, fine, you just move the North Carolina, South Carolina line north a couple miles. <laughs> we did get the stone back, and we put it back in the original position. <laughs> On nuts. <laughs> so, otherwise, but... Uh, we also, we also on the Horry County section of the uh, North Carolina, South Carolina line, there were monuments that were set every two miles. They were the granite monuments that David talked about. We had to put reset one that we got found in the river. But they were granite posts that were eight feet long and uh, nine inches on a side, and they were set every two miles on the boundary. And to the, the mile marker two and mile marker six mile, they were in the woods, but then they developed golf courses in those areas. And so the golf course owners took the six-mile marker, put it on the fairway, and they took the two-mile marker and put it on the fairway. And this is so they could have whoever was playing golf say, well, we're hitting from South Carolina to North Carolina on the fairway. So we went out and recovered those marks and moved them back to their original positions also. Actually, for the six-mile mark, uh, we calculated the coordinates, and uh, using GPS, we went back to the original hole. It still had the bottom of the monument in the hole, and on, in the hole there were also several golf balls, which means <laughs> somebody wasn't very accurate <laughs> playing golf in that area. <laughs> so, but those are, those are some of the things we encountered. Also, there was at the, uh, during the 1772 survey, there was a monument set in 1815 at the fork of the uh, Catawba River. And uh, it was a soapstone monument. It was 10 inches on a side. It was three feet tall and it marked that point where the boundary would go westward to the uh, old Cherokee boundary. But Lake, uh, at that time it was called Lake Catawba, was created in 1904 and uh, was taken over by the Southern Power Company. And in 1920, the, the dam broke and it completely drained the lake. They decided to expand the lake, and in 1924, the lake was filled. The stone still existed at that time because there were, uh, was an article in the Charlotte Observer at that time saying that some people who had taken a Sunday afternoon drive in a carriage they had passed by the stone. So the stone existed in, in still in 23 at that time. We went, we calculated the position of the stone based upon some records that Sid acquired from a friend at Duke Energy of the old um, area before the lake was to be inundated. And some of the monuments that were still existing on land were tied to the old stone. So we, North Carolina and South Carolina independently calculated the position of that stone and came up with the same answer. And so we had a uh, boat at that time at the geodetic survey that we used on the coast for work down there. And uh, we went out to look for the stone to try and find it. We couldn't find it. We enlisted the uh, help of the York County Rescue Squad, and they dove on the position to try and find the stone. It was even though it's only 17 feet down, it's pitch black down there, and they had no success in finding it. But then uh, the director of the, uh, the uh, 
our chief of the geodetic survey at that time, Lou Lapine, uh, had some friends in NOAA, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, and their national response, he had their national response team come up, and they used very high-tech equipment to try and find the stone, but they couldn't find it either. But that was an interesting session to try and find that stone. Well, didn't you say it was a soap made out of, it was a soapstone? Soapstone, yes, sir. Which is a soft stone anyway. I mean, yeah, right, it is. It, it could have been knocked over and laying down, and, and who knows what happened to it. Well, David, let's, let's just talk about present day. Uh, I, I mentioned that surveying the Calhoun-Lexington County line had had to be done for estate purposes and so forth. People would normally, I mean, it was done by a private surveyor, but if somebody has a, a question, do they can they come to your office and say, I don't think I'm in Orangeburg County, I think I'm in Calhoun County, or I think I'm in uh, Barnwell County or whatever. Is, is, is that part of what your office can do, or is that is what our office does. They they can and they do. <laughs> but our workload is such that we really can't just stop what we're doing to help somebody unless we've already determined the answer. Okay? And then we can give them the information. But we will compile what there is in the code of law, what maps we've found, um, any information we have, we will get to those folks. Let's go back in time. The 35th parallel is the cause of all of this problem, or finding the 35th parallel. Correct. In the 18th century, how did those colonial surveyors determine where the 35th parallel was? Now, I can tell you from having worked with colonial libraries, a lot of planters would have a book called Every Man His Own Surveyor, you know, a kind of handbook for dummies on how you could survey your own property line. But seriously, how did they find the 35th parallel? How could they determine that? (laughs) Back then, they had specialized equipment. I mean, it's the same way sailors figured out where they were. You know, they used the stars. They used sectants. They used, you know, equipment that they had on hand. And some surveyors' equipment was a lot better than other surveyors. So that's why we have some errors. Um, But I mean, they just, they had the equipment, they had the tables, they had the know-how to do it. Okay. And and you mentioned using chains. Where, how do you figure the chains in with? The, the chains, um, the surveyor's chain is 66 foot. So each link is 0.66 foot. You know, there's ways that you can convert that to, to current feet. The confusion is sometimes surveyors used an engineer's chain. Engineer's chain is 100 foot. So you just sort of got to look at the evidence on the ground and figure out what did they use. And the majority of the time, they, it was a surveyor's chain. It's very rare that you find that they use the engineer's chain. As you mentioned, Alan, that they they got lost in the swamp. They got tired. They didn't get paid. I think there's a fairly good story that one of those surveyors really liked corn liquor and may have gone off course in the process. But it's kind of interesting that it was the surveying of the Catawba Indian Reservation, which the colony of South Carolina created, that helped get things back on track. That's where they caught the arrow. And then when they went north in in 1772 survey and came around the uh, reservation and westward, that the the land uh, sort of balanced out what what was lacking in the 1764 survey. It was interesting in that uh, before the 1772 survey, that area west of the 1764 endpoint at the Salisbury Road, that's sort of a no man's land up there because North, both North Carolina and South Carolina were granting land. Yes. And, uh, for example, tax collectors would come down from North Carolina and get somebody and they say, oh, no, we live in South Carolina. And the South Carolina tax collectors would go up and the people would say, oh, no, we live in North Carolina. But there was no boundary there yet. And that's also interesting, too, because the question of where was Andrew Jackson born? He was born in the Wax Halls, but there was no boundary between the two provinces at that time until 1772. And he was born in 1767. Well... He said he was born in South Carolina. 
<laughs> and any person who would contradict Andrew Jackson, <laughs> he would have been challenged. You know, any, any number of documents I've actually seen, he said he was born in South Carolina. So that's, that's good enough for me. Uh, <laughs> despite the claims of some historians on the other side of the, the border. We do have the state park in South Carolina. Oh, they do have a state park. And probably part of the confusion is that Jackson was fighting with Colonel Davey, who was from South Carolina, but then he settled in North Carolina after the war, became governor and founder of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, then just a kind of prep school for boys. After he re retired, he moved back to South Carolina, and he's buried at the Presbyterian Church in the Waxhaws. So, I'll, I'll tell you um, something I've heard Alan John say at several presentations, which I, I never really thought about, is because of this error and them not going to the 35th parallel, we now have all this beautiful part of South Carolina and the upstate, the Piedmonts. We have Table Rock. We have Joe Cassie. We have Caesar's Head. We have all of this beauty in South Carolina and diversity now. Um, never really thought about it that way, but... It's an interesting take. Alan, it warmed this historian's heart to know that you found a 19-foot plat, 1815 plat, in the archives. Are we getting away from paper today? And this may be, David, your question. Are we getting away from paper plats, or is everything going to be electronically stored, or what? We are still producing paper plats. We're still producing paper plats. I mean, it's based on electronic, you know, drawings, but we are still producing paper plats. We still legally have to sign and seal those plats. Um, they're recorded at the Register of Deeds offices. Even with the surveys we're doing now on county lines, we're required to certify them. And then um, when an appeals window is closed, we file those with the state archives, the Secretary of State's office, and the Register of Deeds of the counties that are involved. So we are still leaving a paper trail. And it's pretty, getting pretty voluminous, I would imagine, isn't it? It is. We have a lot of documents out of our office, a lot. Okay. All right. Alan, any last comments before we sign off today? As you say, there were a lot of articles generated by the uh, reestablishment and boundary, and people told us, well, why, why, number one is why are you moving the boundary? Number one response to that is we didn't move the boundary. We just reestablished where it was originally based upon the best available evidence. And number two is uh, because the original boundary markers were basically marked trees uh, from the 1700s, 1800s that were cut down or died eventually, and neither state made the effort to uh, replace these uh, boundary trees with any other type of marker, the evidence for where the boundary, original boundary was became ambiguous. So depending upon uh, who you were speaking with determined where actually the boundary was. They said, well, why do it now? And, well, if we didn't do it now, you kick the can down the road. It's like with any other issue. If you kick the can down the road, you're going to continue to have those problems, and those problems may multiply. So we're the ones that did it. Um, we may take the flack for it, but I think it's something that's beneficial for both states uh, and uh, will help alleviate any problems in the future. Okay. All right. David, any last words? No, I'm with Alan. You know, we're trying not to kick the can down the road. We're trying to get these things resolved before there's more development, before there are more impacts. We're working all over the state to try to get county boundaries resolved now. And any, I would say, any time somebody suspects there's a monument that might be a county boundary monument, contact our office. Let us know so at least we can get a, a geographic position on that. And when we do the work, we'll we'll have that in our records. You know, we, we've had occasion like they had with Tryon where somebody suspected there was a county line marker and they ended up pulling it and bringing it to the museum. And, and that's not even on the North Carolina-South Carolina boundary. So we have the same thing occurring locally. Last comment. I guess uh, south of the border stayed in South Carolina. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. 
David Ballard and Ellen John Zupon, thanks so much for being with us today on The Journal. Thank you. Thank you. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know I did. South Carolina's boundaries, as we know historically, have been something contentious. The Georgia border dispute was in court for years, literally, and cost South Carolina millions of dollars. The North Carolina-South Carolina boundary dispute was settled. It took a few years, but settled peacefully at a minimum cost to the state and to individuals concerned. Isn't it nice these days to hear a story of cooperation between two states that not always have gotten along so well? This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.